0: Welcome to Tape Heads. I'm Sean. And I'm Lindsay. Tape Heads is the podcast where we select either a VHS tape from Lindsay's collection or a VHS tape from my collection. We watch it and then we talk about it.
1: Sean, this was your week, so what did we watch?
0: We watched the 1987 film The Stepfather, starring Terry O'Quinn as Jerry Blake, a man who just wants to have the perfect family.
1: There are a couple things... About this movie one I hadn't heard of it before ever but apparently there's a remake really kind of shares this strange link to man of the house
0: yes the 1995 Chevy Chase uh, JTT team-up that we covered on episode 3 they both have to do with a stepdad who is accused of being a serial killer
1: Yeah, and a stepchild who's not really into him. There's something off.
0: Although, well, that was a Disney family movie. This is firmly in the suspense horror genre, I would I, say. I feel
1: like this is a thriller. A more of a thriller? A little more of a thriller. It's got it's got a little bit of the horror element in there.
0: No, I think you're right. Um, I remember this being more of a horror movie than it sort of turned out to be. I think it it is sort of more of like a Hitchcockian suspense thriller but yeah both films set in the seattle area mm-hmm. um, both of them shot in canada a lot of things uh really sync up with man of the house except for the fact that well chevy chase is a pretty nice guy and generally wanted to bring their family together uh terry Quinn's uh jerry blake is is not such a nice guy
1: it's it's like if, if this movie had come out after Man of the House, I would have thought it was some kind of reimagining where JTT's theory that he's a serial killer is true.
0: And what's funny is the sequels are even more like Man of the House because in both 2 and 3, there's a blonde-haired, precocious kid that looks a lot like JTT.
1: Wait, there's sequels? Oh, yeah. Are they with O'Quinn?
0: Terry O'Quinn came back for the second one. Actually I may not have ever found out about this movie had it not been for the sequels, because I remember being in the fourth grade and uh, there was this kid in my class who is kind of from the wrong side of the tracks, but uh but he was a he was a nice kid and one time uh during recess he's he was like, Sean, you gotta check out Stepfather Three <laughs> And I was like, Why Stepfather Three? I've never even heard of these movies and he's like there's a scene in Stepfather 3 where a kid in a wheelchair gets pushed into a meat grinder. <laughs> Jesus.
1: <Jeez. And then, laughs> so what is the accent that your friend has?
0: <laughs> I don't know. He's kind of like a little Christian Slater. But anyway, I thought to myself, well that, that's probably something I want to see. Oh, um, but it's like I have to see Stepfather 1 and 2 first. I can't just jump into this third movie cold. Um, and boy am I glad that I did because the first movie is, I think, a pretty strong thriller. We'll, we'll get into this in a bit. The second film is a little bit weaker. They're able to bring back Quinn. um, there's just enough kind of spins on it to make it feel, uh, you know, not like a complete ripoff of the original But the third movie, the one that uh, I had wanted to see this whole time, is terrible. It opens with, uh, they couldn't get Terry O'Quinn back. It was a direct-to-cable sequel. And while there is a little kid in a wheelchair in it, he does not get pushed into a meat grinder. Uh, Although he does at one point rise from his wheelchair to push somebody else into a meat grinder. So that was lost in translation. <clears throat> yes so stepfather 3 not a good film but stepfather it 1 would have been
1: get, a good if a kid in a wheelchair went through a meat grinder actually it's right? the sense i'm getting you
0: know but he's kind of the jtt of the movie so i think it would have been pretty distressing if that kid was thrown into a meat grinder okay i think that there's a youtube compilation of just all the funniest scenes from stepfather 3 including the stepfather dressed up as an easter bunny
1: This actually sounds a little bit like the Home Alone series, like you've got the originals in the first two, and then you get this weird sub in the third one, and it's a lot goofier.
0: Oh my god, you're exactly right. This is just like the Home Alone (laughs) series. One is a classic, two is a borderline remake, but they still brought back the main attraction, and then three is just a terrible, terrible mess so there were some trailers on this VHS Um, this was a VHS that I acquired some time ago um, when all that video in Visalia California was closing down Um, and I swooped up this uh, first edition I believe copy of the stepfather
1: it seems pretty old it seems like it could have been out of the 80s
0: these are some of the most dated trailers we've seen on the podcast We kick things off with a movie called A Man in Love.
1: Which no one apparently knows about because I tried Googling it and I couldn't even find the movie in the first page of the results and I had to change my Google search for A Man in Love movie.
0: Yeah, this is a very odd film. Um, I don't know why it's put on the Stepfather VHS tape. It has some recognizable people in it like Jamie Lee Curtis Mm -hmm. but it's sort of like a romantic drama
1: it's a romantic drama where this guy's going through a midlife crisis and he's got two women that he's in love with and why can't you just love more than one person but then the women are upset at each other and yeah it's kind of it it seemed really dry for all the drama in it
0: yeah it, it seemed less like a chick flick and more like an artsy sensitive dude flick if such a thing exists
1: I don't know if that exists. I think it's more of like indulgent dude who wants to imagine having multiple women.
0: Yes. Then we were treated to an ad for Embassy Home Video Real Deals. Now, this was a treat to watch because kind of like the 20th Century Fox selections, some of the most arbitrary random movies are shown in montage. For example, uh, Labyrinth. The Cotton Club, A Chorus Line and The Graduate. And if you act now, dear listener, you can get one of these real deals on VHS for the low low price of 19.95.
1: 19.95 seems so expensive for a VHS tape in the late 80s.
0: I mean, I think it makes sense because it was a new format. Like do yeah. you remember how expensive DVDs were when they first came out? This
1: is true and Blu-ray.
0: I think the novelty of owning a movie and you can watch it whenever you want at your convenience I feel like that still was a commodity in 1987.
1: I wonder too if they were still kind of resisting and trying to protect theater ticket sales.
0: Yeah that's a very good point too it's sort of like a movie coming to VOD at the same time that it comes to theaters there's a big markup for that and then if you go all the way until after the credits there's another hidden trailer just as arbitrary It's for a little movie called Defense of the Realm.
1: Which also looked kind of dry for how dramatic its content was.
0: It seems like almost like a Cold War thriller starring Gabriel Byrne. Siskel and Ebert gave it two thumbs up.
1: Yeah, I liked how they had a special frame with a picture of Siskel and Ebert too. Yeah,
0: taken from the show. You don't really see that in ads anymore. Just still frames of a TV program that recommended it. So we can add three to my uh, trailer count. (laughs) I think I'm about 30 or 40 ads behind you at this point, but I'm catching up. So The Stepfather is a film ostensibly about this guy. We know him by a few names, but he's played by Terry O'Quinn. We know him as Jerry Blake for most of the movie. He is essentially a serial killer who... Is looking for the perfect family. What he does is he finds widows who have kids. He sort of inserts himself into the family as yeah. the titular stepfather.
1: But he wants to be kind of this ideal father. This sort yeah. of perfect father who has his woodworking shop in the basement, and he does all little hand handy things around the house, and
0: he very much has this '50s sort of sitcom view of what the American dream should be, like what the perfect nuclear family should be, and he's very critical of people that don't really share his belief in in the family and the importance of the family, and he sort of has this leave it to beaver sort of outlook on everything. As we see in the beginning of the film, it's a very strong opening. He has just killed his previous family, so there's no doubt about who this guy is. Basically, when things go south with his family, as they always do in this cycle, he...
1: And we're talking when they go south, it's just that maybe people are angry and arguing and the kids aren't cooperating or something. Like, it's not really that bad.
0: When the perfect veneer is gone and it no longer feels like a perfect...
1: Yeah, and uh, reality sets in.
0: Yeah, when reality sets in, there's arguing um, his place as the head of the family or the man of the house, if you will.
1: Might be questioned. Might
0: be questioned. He basically starts setting up another life. Um, And this is one of the most interesting facets of the movie to me in this idea that... He quits his job, but continues to leave the house each day as if he's going to his job. But he's really getting on a ferry and setting up a new life in another Washington state town and finding a new kind of family to move in with. Mm-hmm. Terry Quinn's performance, I think I should just say at the top of this, is incredible. Like, this is the th- this performance is what I always remember about this movie, is just how committed he is and how kind of believable and at times kind of likable he is like you almost believe for a second that he really is this perfect father even though you know exactly what he is
1: yeah because he he has this infectious smile and he seems so caring and stuff but then the darkness comes out
0: yeah and i guess terry o'quinn now is best known as playing john locke on lost but growing up i always knew him as the stepfather
1: did that kind of change your view of him when you were watching Lost? Were you just waiting for him to snap and start murdering people?
0: Well, it definitely intrigued me. In I mean, he, that's sort of the most interesting character on that show, or at least the most enigmatic one, especially in the early seasons. And I feel I always had that thought in the back of my mind, like, there's a reason they cast him for this role. Like, there's something to this character, because... I feel like an actor like Terry O'Quinn, he's there because you're giving him something to chew on. You know, he's he's operating at a few different levels. Like one of my favorite scenes in this movie is uh, when he sort of forgets which personality he's supposed or which person that he's supposed to be.
1: Yeah, because he changes his identity entirely when he moves from it from the old family to a new family. And he's in this process with it and his wife is starting to figure it out. His wife, played by Shelley Hack, he's on the phone trying to call his workplace to prove to her that he hasn't quit his job. No, really, he's going to work like he says he is, but then he can't finish the phone call because he's giving the wrong name.
0: And that leads to the classic line, who am I here? Which kind of just sums up the movie for me. So I guess the movie, in a nutshell, follows Stephanie, the 16-year-old girl played by Jill Sholin, who is kind of an... 80s scream queen um she's very skeptical of this guy jerry it's um just a year after her biological father passed away her mom has already remarried with this guy she she's very skeptical of him he seems like the toast of the town this very successful real estate agent Mm -hmm. but she has a feeling there's more to the story there's
1: just something off and she does not trust him
0: she's sort of acting out at school she has a therapist that she's very close with that sort of in a way is encouraging her to sort of be skeptical of her stepdad
1: he kind of he tries to encourage her to connect with her stepdad too, but he he begins to recognize that there is genuinely something wrong with him. And it's kind of interesting because like one of the things that she says in the movie is that her therapist is one of her best friends, which is interesting because her therapist is this like middle-aged guy.
0: Yeah, that relationship is very interesting. I think that all three of the lead performances, well, and the and the therapist are pretty strong. The mom, daughter, and Terry O'Quinn. I think that they're really believable as a family, and I think that the mom, uh, Shelley Hack, sort of portrays this um, vulnerability, and you can sort of see how someone like Jerry could kind of swoop in. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, because I mean, imagine you lo- you lose your husband, you still have this daughter. But she's in her teen- uh, you know she's in her teens, and maybe she's starting to act out before Terry O'Quinn even comes into her into their life, right? And so it's just like you want to do something and you think, well, maybe she needs a father figure and I need somebody to help me. So there he gets to swoop in.
0: And the other major character in all of this, sort of in a subplot all of his own, is the brother, technically the brother-in-law of Jerry. Basically the brother of his previous wife who he had killed at the beginning of the movie. Yeah,
1: at the beginning of the movie, by the way, you get to see him remove all of his facial hair and completely change his appearance so that he can start his new life and he walks down and there's just gore all through the living room and entryway to the house and you see a dead child.
0: It's a very strong opening for a number of reasons. One just how shocking that crime scene is.
1: So this is just how awful this man is.
0: And two, because they could have just as easily sort of gone the rear window route where you're not sure if he's a bad guy or not. Mm -hmm. But I really like that you know right up front who this guy is, what his sort of process is, and it sort of raises the stakes because you know, like, once this family starts to fall apart, this is the fate that awaits them. Well,
1: you know he's a ticking time bomb. Yeah. They bring up the brother, or I guess in this case, the brother-in-law, and I... I really don't feel like his character and his subplot was necessary. I think they could have changed up the movie a little bit, taken him out and then written written in a little bit more with Stephanie.
0: I mean, he's kind of like um, in The Shining, the film, not the book, the Scatman Carruthers character sort of has this whole subplot where he's trying to get to... The Overlook Hotel to save the family. Yeah. And there's a lot of time spent on that. But Jack Nicholson just quickly kills him once he shows up. It's a very similar thing with this where it's kind of that false hope that someone is going to come to the rescue. This white knight is putting it all together. You know, this kind of vigilante who's going to figure out what's going on. And he comes so close, but no cigar. No you know. cigar. I think that it adds a little something to it. I like the idea that he's kind of this guy who had been bumming around Europe, he says, when his sister was killed, and now he's really taken it upon himself to track this guy down. It is a little hard to believe that no one has put this together. It seems so obvious, these clues that he's following, that um, he has to be within a certain radius of, of Seattle to have set up this whole other life. Yeah, well, he seemed to just be going to work every day. So there's definitely some holes in that But um, I think it does sort of give you Another little perspective outside of the family whether or not it would have I think it probably would have been about the same movie without his little subplot It's just
1: kind of weird because his subplot doesn't match in for like a couple of reasons one because they don't really develop his character so much, but you see development in the mother and the daughter but then the other thing that's weird is they it's like they play a different soundtrack during his <laughs> scenes. So then it, it's especially jarring because suddenly you've got this techno exciting music playing while he's in the car.
0: Yeah, there's like this drum machine sort of, you know, cop drama music playing when he peels out in his car or when he's a... Uh running through the library trying to find this old copy of this magazine that had an article that's going to lead him to the stepfather. Definitely one of the weaker aspects of the movie. Stephanie sort of begins to suspect that something is up with her stepfather when he reacts to this newspaper article that is actually reprinted at the request of the brother where it sort of uh, dredges up the past, talks about these killings that had happened in Seattle. She sees his reaction to it. He has sort of a freak out in the basement. And this leads to this whole sort of thing where she's sort of doing her own investigation into his past.
1: Yeah, the thing in the basement's kind of weird because there's a family party happening in the backyard and the party's just kind of about how great they are as a family and how awesome an addition he is to the neighborhood. And then he's down in the basement Sort of talking to two different sides of himself the side of himself that tries to keep it together and be a family man And the side of himself that just wants to murder everybody
0: And he's definitely melting down because of the article like he would like to believe that this is the first family He's ever had and he's never killed anybody and he's the perfect father But I think that that the fact that he's sort of cracking at the seams to begin with is what really raises a red flag for Stephanie
1: we should also know he's not even just—he's not just trying to be the perfect father. He's trying to be this perfect husband as well. Like there's this very awkward scene where he's having intimate, loving sex with his new <laughs> his new wife, and his and the daughter is having to listen to it on the other side of the wall.
0: I think moments like that—they they're definitely disturbing, but they kind of help sell the reality of this situation in a way that uh, the closest movie, uh, Man of the House, uh, didn't quite. <laughs> I mean we had to believe in man of the house that jtt was able to convince uh chevy chase to sleep in a separate room yeah i don't know where i'm going with this i just really want to connect this movie to man of the house
1: we haven't really said much about stephanie i mean she's kind of going through all this turmoil she's confiding in her uh therapist who then says you know what i want to meet him and i want to talk to terry o'quinn and terry o'quinn flatly refuses which is a big tipping off point like tipping point for the the therapist and deciding this is a bad man
0: he doesn't even like the idea of his daughter being in therapy like even that she's getting into fights in school and just acting out in general and he feels like he should have the perfect daughter and i feel like the therapy is just another aspect of that which leads to um One of the more shocking scenes in the movie when finally the therapist just pretends to be a different person, sets up an appointment with Jerry and checks out this house.
1: Because Jerry's a real estate agent.
0: He sort of gives this whole spiel about how he doesn't really care about the family. You know, just kind of trying to push Jerry's buttons a little bit. He sort of flubs his story and Jerry gets very suspicious and proceeds to brutally murder him with a two-by-four. Which
1: I thought was an overreaction. <laughs>
0: well, we gotta remember who this guy is. I mean, he yeah. is a murderer at the end of the day.
1: Yeah, this guy seemed like a liar, so it made him suspicious. But at the And it did follow that article coming out, so it seemed like he thought that this was someone trying to catch him, you know?
0: He is usually very careful Like he is usually very methodical And precise And this seemed like more of like A crime of passion sort of thing Well and
1: it's just so high risk I mean blood splatter There was a lot of blood and none of it leaked through This paper onto the white carpet Somehow (laughs) He stages the murder but it's like You had an appointment with this man There's going to be a record of it somewhere Which there is
0: there's definitely a trail of breadcrumbs that jerry leaves behind wherever he goes i mean there's magazine articles uh that, that the, the the brother-in-law is able to use and He's not very good at covering his tracks, especially because he stays inside of the same state.
1: But this is where, like, I don't, I I really don't feel like, and I know you like the addition of the brother-in-law, but I kind of feel like he doesn't add much to it, and it's just a little bit of a distraction where they could have done more with the mother and Stephanie, because, like he's already on edge he's already realizing he could get caught he knows Stephanie has ordered a picture of uh, of him from the newspaper that printed that article
0: yeah I, I think another big part is just that it's pre-internet and it's yeah. harder to really find out things about him so
1: he but Stephanie's already on kind of on the case He takes this huge risk with the the therapist and then Stephanie later goes to the therapist's office and sees evidence that he was meeting with her stepdad that day. Like there are a lot of things in there where they could have had this movie play out about the same way without the brother-in-law even existing. If you just cut all of those scenes, I don't think it would have changed it that much.
0: Ultimately, it just adds up to a cheap scare in the sense that you expect the brother-in-law to save the day, but he gets killed so easily.
1: Even though he has a gun.
0: I think it really is kind of taking a page from The Shining because they do the exact same thing there.
1: I think you're right with that one.
0: Going back to The Therapist, there's that scene where he's disposing of the body by putting it inside of the car and setting it up the car to drive off the cliff and it's
1: very complicated
0: putting the rag in the gas tank and i kind of like all these little methodical touches it sort of remind me a little bit of psycho just in the sense that when he's getting rid of the body uh and and trying to drive that um drive janet lee's car into the into the marsh like you sort of have that moment where you're like yeah, get rid of the evidence. And then you start to realize who that you're accidentally sort of rooting for the bad guy because you I don't know, it's it sort of aligns you with the antagonist in an interesting way when he when there's these methodical scenes of getting rid of the evidence i find
1: well it's kind of interesting because the the his murder of the therapist is accidental he doesn't even know who this guy is he murders him figures out when he checks his id that it's the therapist and then is able to use this to get close to stephanie yeah because she's so upset that her one of her best friends died
0: it's pretty sick how he's able to leverage that for a while, it seems like they've sort of repaired their relationship. I mean, as much as they really well, can. But then there's this thing with the boyfriend that's very yeah. interesting. Because there's
1: she doesn't really have many friends because she was getting into big fights at school. But she has a girlfriend that she talks to on the phone, and there's this boy that she likes to walk home with. And there's one night where they go out, and she, he, he brings her home, and they... Maybe Mac a little on the porch. And then her dad her stepdad bursts out and accuses the boy of trying to rape her yeah. and goes just <laughs> yeah. absolutely bonkers.
0: To the point that she runs away into the night yeah. and he's shocked that the that the mom takes the daughter's side because of course and I think that's when things really start to fall apart. I mean, in the sense that that's kind of the moment where he's like, well, it's time to move on to the next family because the very next day he yeah. quits his job.
1: But I think you've got it where it's like he's got this idea of 1950s and how relationships work and you have all these stories of protective fathers scaring away the boyfriends and stuff. So it's like he was trying to do that, but he went to this insane extreme
0: Yeah, there's a very telling scene when he's watching Mr. Ed on TV, that old show about the talking horse, and he's just laughing to himself. Like, this is his idea of what life should be like. He really has, like, an idealized vision of the perfect family. Yeah,
1: which I don't think... I don't think I've ever told you this story, but there's a story of when my grandmother was, I'm trying to remember how old she was. I think she was probably 15 or so. And she, she had her first date and her date came to the house. And my great grandfather, her father was sitting on the porch, cleaning his shotgun (laughs) and absolutely terrified the guy. And my grandmother did not get to go on another date because the guy did not want to see her again.
0: That's fantastic.
1: Ah. Uh, so I think that's what Terry Quinn was going for.
0: Yeah, except in even more <laughs> unhinged in a way. I think that this movie also kind of works as a satire of the perfect American family. Just kind of looking at when this came out, there's a lot of Reagan imagery in the movie as well. I mean, it's that late 80s sort of feel when the country was in sort of this conservative sort of puritanical bent yeah and i don't know it's a very interesting movie and um especially the fact that it came out in a time of kind of brainless slasher movies this is sort of at the end of that cycle but i feel like there's more going on than uh than your average thriller of this era interestingly the director joseph rubin did a couple movies that centered on family members trying to kill you he also did The Good Son, which is about <laughs> evil Macaulay Culkin trying to kill little Elijah Wood. Aww. Um He did a Julia Roberts movie called Sleeping with the Enemy, where her husband is uh, abusive. Like, he sort of has a thing going on. Um, wow. And so this is part of a, uh, a proud line of Joseph Rubin family murder movies.
1: <laughs> God.
0: I also understand that this film is loosely based on John List, who is a new jersey killer who killed his family because he wanted to make sure that they got into heaven oh and he was on the run for some time and i think don't think he was captured until after this movie was released but i think that the um screenwriter donald westlake based sort of this story on that event and uh apparently also based the character of stephanie on his own teenage stepdaughter which is interesting for a number of reasons
1: Aw, Yeah, maybe a little bit, because Stephanie's also naked in this movie. Yeah. Gratuitously you, so. You had
0: some thoughts about this. Yeah, I was
1: actually very upset, because she's, pa- she's playing a 16-year-old, and she's very youthful-looking, and it adds nothing. Like, there's literally no reason for them to show her naked. Like, you can show her going into a bathroom and getting in to take a shower or something, but they didn't have to show her ass and breasts and everything. Like, that was just because...
0: Normally, I'm I'm in agreement with you on this. Normally, I don't really mind gratuitous nudity in like a cheesy 80s horror movie, but this is sort of. Up until that point, I feel like it had been really above all that, especially in the context of she's the sixteen-year-old daughter of the or stepdaughter of this killer. It did seem a little odd. It's
1: weird too because they make her feel like they make her feel like a character that is so young and innocent and vulnerable, and that's why you really feel for her. Like when you see in her room, she has like cutesy bunny decorations up on her wall and stuff. Like she's very young. So that's where it's kind of weird, and it doesn't really fit in with the rest of the movie. It's that's where, the other thing that was kind of weird. Like there was no sort of preamble to this because even the the sex scene that between her mom and stepfather is doesn't have really much nudity at all. Yeah,
0: it's very tame.
1: It's a really tame sex scene. So that's where it's so out of place. Like they could have showed her mom naked instead of her, but they chose to show her.
0: She's 24, Jill Schoen, when this is made, playing a 16-year-old. She is very young-looking, but she actually is only, it's 16 years younger than her mom and 11 years uh, younger than Terry Quinn.
1: Which is weird, because Terry O'Quinn looks older than her mom.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I think a lot of that is just the way they dress him and the way that he looks uh, True. in this. But yeah, it, it is a little odd. And um, it, it hadn't bothered me when I was younger, but definitely looking at it as an adult, yeah. it is a little... It does sort of rub you the wrong way.
1: Because I'm not opposed to nudity in films. It's just kind of like how you do it. And I just didn't, I didn't really quite like how they did it, because this movie had me until then.
0: Yeah, and they're definitely trying to sexualize her. And what's weird is it's very late in the game. It's in the last fifteen or so minutes yeah. of the movie. Yeah,
1: it's it's like sudden sexuality, like sudden sexualizing of her, and then bam, super violence.
0: Aside from that, though, the finale of this movie is pretty thrilling. I think basically he's turned on his family. Uh, he, he's sort of deviating from his own plan. He's doing all of this kind of early. Uh, By the way, let's talk about how easy it is for him to get a job without a social security number. Kind of like big.
1: Yeah, I know you had said it's easier to get a job in this world than it is in the big world. Yeah,
0: I mean, he sets up this whole other life. He does this numerous times, or to believe. Within the space of like a week, he finds a new high-paying job. Not an entry-level job, but like at an insurance company or a real estate company. And he manages to find a widow with a family that he can swoop in on. Like, he's very efficient. And people don't really ask him a lot of particulars about his previous life.
1: He's just like, uh, they, they ask him, oh, can you sell insurance? Yeah, I can sell insurance like anything. I'm great at it. And that's especially about
0: it. like family insurance. <laughs> Aww. Um, the
1: other thing is how easy it is for him to find single women with children. Because he, he's looking at houses, and he just happens to walk over to a lady that's, do, that's, that's uh, raking her lawn, which I guess if you're raking your lawn, you've got to be a widow. <laughs> <laughs> just like, I didn't
0: think <laughs> about it that way, but maybe he's been at this game so long that he knows all the telltale signs. Yeah. He quickly dispatches the brother-in-law who comes in to save the day
1: just like in seconds it doesn't even take anything the the brother-in-law has a gun but he's so shocked he just stands there and gets stabbed
0: and that's a great scene too because i love the way terry o'quinn plays it because instead of being surprised or scared by jim showing up He's just kind of like, oh, Jim, how are you? Like, for a moment, he forgets that this is a guy from his previous yeah. life. He has this moment of recognition and kind of happiness. And then he realizes, oh, shit, this is the He's brother of the the wife I murdered. And I think it's I think that Jim is taken aback by that, too, because mm-hmm. he, he, yeah, really should just take out the gun immediately and shoot him. But he doesn't.
1: Yeah. And this goes into a great battle between uh, jerry stephanie and susan
0: yeah that whole sequence in the attic is great where they're trying not to step on that you know fake floor substance for me
1: it kind of makes up for the gratuitous nudity because you get to see these women own it and be very like powerful and fight back
0: yeah i mean the the brother-in-law blows it but at least he um Provides a gun to the house for the mom to use to to shoot at him, and um, allows uh, Stephanie the chance to sink a butcher knife into his chest.
1: Well, and it's important to note at this point that the mom had already fallen down the basement stairs and was incapacitated for a while, but manages to drag herself out to protect her daughter.
0: Yeah, it's very strong female characters. I feel like uh, shower scene aside. <laughs> And the last line of the movie, of course, is Jerry saying, I love you, which is just adds to that whole creepy family vibe yeah. to it. Yeah.
1: The other thing I kept wondering was how many families has he had and killed?
0: Actually, this was established in the sequel. He had done this twice before the movie, okay. the sequel was, establishes.
1: So I was thinking there's no way he could have gotten away with it if he'd done it, you know, three, four times. Yeah. Two, I'll allow two.
0: Yeah, what's interesting is it really seems like he's definitively dead at the end of this movie. I mean, there's a butcher knife in his heart. He has multiple gunshot wounds. Uh, The second one opens with him in a Southern California psychiatric hospital, and he's survived from his wounds. Wait, what? I was
1: assuming this. The, the, the sequel was, in fact, more of a prequel. Like oh, no. He,
0: he lives on. Oh, Jesus. Um, The second one is interesting. Kind of amazing they got Terry O'Quinn back for a sequel. But um, it's all about him moving in on another family. It's a son who's actually kind of cool with him and likes him.
1: Wait, how does... Does he escape from the psychiatric Yeah. Ward? He, okay, because I was going to say, they're not going to let him out. He's no. killed children.
0: <laughs> no, he butchers his way out. It's actually... One of the inventive things about the second one, he's he's saving up hairs to build a little mustache for himself so he can yeah. he can look like a security guard uh, and and leave. There's some interesting elements to the second one. He tries to um pose as a marriage counselor sort of California suburbia environment which is interesting Mm -hmm. but ultimately it is kind of a retread and then the third one as I said is a mess although it's very funny um the third one is basically a remake only with a kid in a wheelchair um overcoming his paralysis to push a different actor into a meat grinder
1: kind of like the secret garden
0: <laughs> yes <laughs> so father three and the secret garden are pretty much the same movie okay and then there was a really really bad 2000s remake a pg-13 remake that I guess the only notable person in it is Amber Heard, but she's not playing the Jill Sholin character. There is no Stephanie character. It's about a son. And I really don't think it works as well. I mean, both of the sequels and the remake try pitting the stepfather against a son. For some reason, that dynamic is just not as interesting as the stepfather and daughter relationship. I don't know why, but it, it just doesn't have that same, like, tension.
1: I know, there was a lot of tension in Man of the House.
0: It's true. And their lives are in jeopardy in the last act of that movie. Yeah.
1: One of the things I was thinking was, it's yeah he, he sort of has that uh, woodworking area in the basement of each of his homes. But he builds this birdhouse uh, that they put up. And I, I kind of like how they take it down. When the movie's over, you know he, they're done with him when they're using a saw to chop down the... Birdhouse that he had made.
0: Yeah, there's definitely a sadness in that shot, just in the sense that, to me, that sort of symbolizes them giving up on how, on recreating the family that they once had. Like it's you sort of have the feeling that they're just gonna have each other from now on. And but I kind not of think the to... movie's
1: saying that's enough because it's interesting that they end in the backyard because the movie it their their part of the movie the mother and daughter began in that backyard playing and having fun together until he came home yeah
0: just sort of having like a leaf fight
1: yeah and it was kind of disrupted by him and so that's why i like that they end the movie there because it's kind of emphasizing that they really can do well together and be happy together
0: yeah i guess i guess all that i meant to say was that it's it's sort of sad in the sense that susan really thought that she had found happiness again she even has a speech at one point where she says She never thought that she'd love again, but then Jerry came in and was so perfect, and it's kind of like that has been denied, and they will forever have to live with this traumatic experience. I think it is a pretty strong ending, and it's a great image to end on, and again, I think it sort of suggests that this movie is a cut above some of its uh, competitors of the time.
1: All right, Sean, this is your movie, so you get to go first. Do you buy it, rent it, or tape over it?
0: I'm going to say rent it. I previously would have thought that I would say buy it, but I think that some elements of it haven't aged particularly well. I think that the so, some of the the soundtrack is a little questionable. Um, there's some plot holes here and there. Um, I do feel like it's a strong rent it. I feel like it's a very solid suspense movie. Um, one of the stronger ones of this era, certainly. And I think Terry O'Quinn's performance is just so incredible and so memorable. And it's definitely one that I'll be revisiting, but I don't think that it's a must-own for every horror fan out there.
1: I'm actually also gonna go with Rent It. I thought it was fun. It was interesting. Like you said, it's got its problems. It's funny that you mentioned the soundtrack. I remember when we were watching it, I commented that there was kind of like a lack of soundtrack. It uses silence a lot. Um, which I think works well on a thriller suspense. Yeah, I think overall it was still interesting. Um, he does a really great performance. You you definitely get kind of pulled in by Terry O'Quinn. And then I did like that it had sort of that female power and element in there.
0: Interestingly, um, Jill Sholin, after making this movie co-starred with a young brad pitt in his first movie Um, i think it's called cutting class or cutting classes something like that um and they were actually engaged for several months until jill sholin dumped that loser brad pitt bet she regretted that (laughs) uh i i am not gonna make any conjectures about that but uh interesting tidbit um Instead of Angelina Jolie, it could have just as easily been Jill Scholen.
1: It was uh, Jennifer Aniston before Angelina Jolie. I don't know who it was before that, though. Probably a few people.
0: Yeah, I I guess so.
1: (laughs) It is Hollywood.
0: So next episode, we're switching over to the VHS collection of one Lindsay. Mm -hmm. Um, What will we be watching
1: well, there's one genre that's been strikingly absent from our selection so far, and I realize we need to correct that, and that's rom-coms. And well, because I don't consider big a rom-com, I'm safe and assuming. Yeah, I that's think more that's sort comedy. of
0: a almost like a fantasy comedy.
1: But uh my choice for next time is You've Got Mail.
0: Oh. Starring
1: Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks, the classic duo.
0: Now, Lindsay, why did you choose this over Sleepless in Seattle or Joe Versus the Volcano, one of their other <laughs> team-ups?
1: Oh, Joe Versus the Volcano. Now, um I chose this one over Sleepless in Seattle just cuz I happen to like it more personally. I like Sleepless Sleepless in Seattle, but I think You've Got Mail is more fun. It's a little bit more fun to rewatch because it's got a little bit, it's it's a little bit more relatable than Sleepless in Seattle, but we can talk about it more in the episode.
0: All right, sounds good. I'd like to thank Will Price for use of his song Mandatory Groove. You can find more of Will's music at soundcloud.com slash gargantulon.
1: You can find more information about us and our other episodes on TapeHeadsPodcast.com. You can also contact us if you have any questions at TapeHeadsPodcast at gmail.com. And we'd love to hear any feedback or see some ratings on iTunes.
0: That's it for TapeHeads. I'm Sean. And I'm Lindsay. Until next time.